Welcome to the Anything Goes Podcast, the best geek and pop culture show broadcasting from Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back continuing our our exploration into the Christopher Nolan filmography, and today we're talking about Inception, and if I'm talking about Christopher Nolan, I only can have one guest. I've had, I've had two guests when we're doing the Nolan Batman movies, but there's always been one guest with every Nolan movie we've covered, and that is Mr. Justin Cirillo. Justin, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Tim. How are you doing on this uh, Sunday night? Oh, fine and dandy. <laughs> I, I watched. I, I was forced to watch the Giants game today, and wow. I'm automatically dating this dating this podcast. But whatever, it was a train wreck. And no, do not do not do not go there. Do not fucking go there. I knew. I saw the glimmer in your eye. I saw the ideas that the. I saw you sitting at this fire in your brain, looking through your eyeballs. Well, after I said that sentence, and no, do not go there. I don't like trains. So yes, we're talking about Inception, the movie that Chris Nolan made in two thousand that came out in two thousand ten after he made The Dark Knight. And so let's jump into our review of Inception right now. Blah! <laughs> first hear about Inception and when did you first see it? I first heard about Inception uh, probably right before it came out. I remember I was in on vacation in Washington, D.C. and I read a, um, a newspaper review on it. And it sounded interesting because by that time I'd known who Christopher Nolan was. Obviously, the cast caught my eye. Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Michael Caine, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Alan Page. So, I mean, you know, three, you know, really, you know, top of the end actor, actors and actresses there. So, um, definitely caught my eye. However, it took me a while to see it. I'm terrible with seeing movies, as you all know by now. So I didn't see it until a year after it came out. Really? Des- yeah. Despite all the good reviews and everything? Yeah, despite all the good reviews, despite a bunch of my friends seeing it, I just never got the opportunity or the time or uh, the desire to go out to the cinema and see it. Now, the DC trip, is that the one you and Zach went on? Yes. Okay. To this boring, terrible town where all the uh, the coffee shops close at 7, 7 p.m. And this, what kind of weird-ass curfew is that? I have no idea. And this was before I was 21, so I couldn't even drink my sorrows away legally. Like, like that really stopped you? Uh, I mean, look, if you've never seen me before, I, I still can't pass as 21. So I couldn't pass as 21 when I was 20. That's true. I mean, especially if we're talking about one particular uh, bouncer at the Raven. <laughs> No, 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 the, br- the brick. The brick. Yeah. <laughs> he was a brick shithouse himself, a piece of shit. <laughs> the raven loves me. The brick did not. I mean, I mean, it would be, be terrible if Poe did not love you. Well, 
<laughs> Although, at, at the brick, nevermore. Uh, anyway, uh, I will... Um, I will wait to tell you my first experience with Inception until later on because that kind of plays into my conclusion of the movie and how why I really enjoy this movie. So rewatching this and opening up with like the opening titles, and of course, um, even when we saw Christopher Nolan in person when he did the Q and A for Dunkirk at the uh, Film Society at Lincoln Center here in uh, New York City, uh, and he, he made fun of the the fact that. Pop culture kind of took the blom sound and ran with it. I'm rewatching this the other day. The opening titles have like the bomb, <laughs> and I automatically start laughing. I'm like, I'm like, this is a serious moment here. This is a very serious movie, and I'm already laughing. <laughs> it, it's kind of like if you watch any of the Star Wars movies or any of the lines or anything that's been parody out of it, you end up just like unintentionally laughing at it because it's been made fun of. And so we open up with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio starring in Titanic 2 with uh, waking up on the beach because uh, his heart will go on. <laughs> I'm surprised no one's Celine Dion that scene yet. They have. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, they have. Oh, for God, yes. Yeah, like, it's him on the, like, Leonardo DiCaprio on the beach. It's like, and, and with my heart will go on as he's being dragged away by the uh, guards to see Saito. <laughs> and, uh, and so... We're introduced to Cobb here, and we see uh, a very old, wrinkly man. Um, and then we see the beginning of the spinning top, and how Leonardo DiCaprio seems to recognize the person he's looking at. And then all of a sudden, we cut to, and we find this person had to be. We cut from that old man to the younger version of himself, uh, the character Saito, played by Ken Watanabe. Watanabe. Given more to do than he was in Batman Begins, I feel and like he Christ. was short, he was shortchanged in Batman. He Begins. He really was. And nothing like I don't think it's a knock against Batman Begins. It was just like ah, oh, we know Ken can do better, and so can do so much more. Yeah, <laughs> and we're introduced to Mister Exposition, uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt's character, um, and as we hear about the discussion that's going on, as they are talking about how ideas are the most powerful things the most powerful infections that somebody can deal with. And we don't know yet that we're actually in a dream at this point, but we're just in this kind of seaside, um, Komodo, not, not Komodo. Uh, not Kom- no, no, I'm trying to think what the fuck's that? Uh, palace. Yeah, it's a palace, but no, there's a very specific name for a Japanese palace. Like the one, like every Godzilla movie gets knocked over. Oh, I don't know. Kimono? No. No, uh, that's the Super Mario wears. Oh, fuck. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just becoming more and more culturally insensitive as I bury myself. <laughs> but eventually, like, they seem like, uh, Saito seems to be on to him, and then we're introduced to Maul. What are your feelings in his, this first few scenes of, like, all this kind of weird jargon that's being thrown around and Marianne Cotillard's introduction? Um, it's, it kind of really takes you for a, uh, um, a spin. It takes you a couple of, of watches through to get used to and pick up on all the subtleties within the scene because you sort of, you're thrust into the middle of the action. This isn't like a movie, you know, that has, you know, some sort of good, um, build up to it. It just throws you right into the middle of what ends up being a a dream heist mm-hmm. um, that you're not aware of until, you know, probably about 15 minutes in. Right. 
and it's it's a lot to deal with early on, especially if you're not used to Christopher Nolan's style. Yeah, but I don't think it's it's a lot thrown away, but I don't think it's too overwhelming. I don't think so, especially if you keep an open mind. Yeah. I mean, but it also, like every Nolan movie that deals with nonlinear story structure, it benefits from multiple viewings. Yes. Whether it be this prestige following or memento. So, and then we see that Maul and uh, Cobb uh, reuse the same name as the well, the bad guy in following um, have a history. And Leonardo DiCaprio is doing his best James Bond impression here, going around and killing people with a silence silence pistol. Breaks into the safe, and we realize they're in a dream. Because we see in the supposed real world, I put that in quotations, that there's some kind of uprising happening outside of the apartment they're in, and that Joseph Gordon-Levitt, um, Leo, and Sido are all inside of his dream, and Maul's betrayed them. And they realize, and this is kind of going by dream, a little bit like dream, like Matrix logic here. Like if you get hurt in the dream, it does, it will affect you physically in the real world, mm-hmm. because then Maul fucking kneecaps Joseph Gordon-Levitt right here. And I'm, and I'm watching it, and I'm, I had my TV, I guess, a little loud, but that that just that impact of him being shot in the leg, I was like, ooh, god, that hurt. <laughs> and then. The uprising is going out is going out of, coming out of control. Um, the world that they're in starting to become completely unstable. Uh, Leo shoots uh, uh, Joseph Gordon. I'm trying to think, remember. I can't remember his character's name off the top of my head now. Wow, that's a good point. Yeah, I just have his JGL. That's what because I'm just abbreviating everything in my notes here. But anyway, I feel like so, it's something really no, like, common. Yeah, I mean, there's Ariadne, there's Eames, there's Saito. Um, and then there's Joseph Gordon. <laughs> Delaware. What's so special about Delaware? Anyway, and it really does turn into this big action set piece. It says the whole world is is kind of crumbling on around them. Saito's freaked out. Maul isn't. Uh, Cobb has stolen information from the safe, and he starts to read it. And he's, we find out he's working for Cobalt Industry. Joseph Gordon-Levitt wakes up. Arthur. Arthur. God damn it. You got Arthur clenched fist meme for me for not reali- for not realizing that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio won't wake up, and so they decide after even desp- despite playing the Edith Edith PF uh, music, they give him the kick, which is he f- gets knocked back into the tub of water, and it's the every Blu-ray promo for the next like five years was this moment. Yeah, and uh, like I was him like the speed ramp of him falling back into the water and I do love the fact that they did shoot that on film and it, it was like a thousand frames per second at that point and even though they they even though they tried with digital it wasn't war- it, it was too inconsistent for them and we find out we're in a dream within a dream <sighs> and then we're actually secretly on a train and okay so what do you think about this that we find out we're in the dream within a dream and that it seems that Saito's not mad about this at first. That he's like more impressed more than anything else, despite his mind being violated. Um, I I, I was intrigued by it. It's a good opening scene. It doesn't really explain 
a whole lot, and you, you really have to pay attention because they'll just like throw out lines like it's so matter of fact without really explaining anything to you, like that the reason Saito isn't mad at them is because it's an audition. He knew that um, they were going to try to get something from him. Um, and the fact that he was able to stop them, um, it's almost more like he's disappointed in them. <laughs> I'm not angry. I'm, I'm disappointed. just disappointed. And you find you, they reference that they're working for another corporation on this job to try and steal Saito's information. And like I said, it's a whole lot to soak in when you're, when you're, Dealing with something that's such an abstract thought as um, going into a dream and extracting information from someone. Yeah, and I do find if it's maybe it was a bad idea to use location or build the the architect's idea of where they should have the first dream level is his old is Saito's love nest that happens to have a revolution that's going on outside. Yeah, and I don't think I think that was. Not intentional, but I do find it's like, you know what? I could have probably chosen a better place here. Any hotel room I think would have worked there. <laughs> um, and so we w- were woken up into on the, this, the bullet train that's going on in Japan. And there's only one thing that bothers me in this moment is when Cobb is trying to get off the train and he tosses money to the first guy who was watching them in the train car. He tosses the money to the left side of the frame and it, they break the 180 rule and all of a sudden the money comes on the right side of the frame. And I'm like... It's such a weird editing goof that, like, you blink, you'll miss it. But I've, since I've noticed it, I can't unsee it now. Mm-hmm. And it's curious that I wonder if shooting in Asia for The Dark Knight kind of influenced uh, Nolan's idea to have part of the movie take place in Japan. I think so. Because I feel like – because that section of The Dark Knight was such a visually mesmerizing moment. Yes. In an interesting locale. And so when, when we cut to Cobb in his hotel room spinning the top, that topples over. So we find out that it's his totem to find out if he's dreaming or not. And then his kids call him. How do his kids have this number? It's a good question. Maybe it's a hotel room he uses frequently. I guess. And I imagine it's like... Because he goes back to Paris, right? After after this, after this, not yet, not yet. Okay, because, like if it was Paris, he's calling from his grandfather, like his yeah. father-in-law's house. Excuse me, that I could see that happening. But I'm, I'm watching it this time, and I'm like, wait a second, this doesn't sound right. But we find out that that their mother is gone. We don't know what yet, and that his, his Philippa is not um, convinced that he's ever going to come back. And James is not recognized that their, their mother is dead. And so I was like, oh, geez, this is really upsetting. And then uh, Arthur and Cobb try and get out of Japan. And they run into Saito. And they find out, like, his architect gave him up. And they, 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 they are, they're like, you can kill him if you want. They're like, I don't do that. All right, fine, let's get in the cobalt industry. We're not going to know what, like, he's probably going to be skinned alive for all we know. But, and then he... Side open uh, says the idea like, what about Inception? 
and gives him the and like um, and gives him the call to action to see if he can perform Inception on a competitor in order for his competitor to dissolve their company's empire. And they have this conversation with the helicopter doors open. They're outside the helicopter, and so I was inside the helicopter with the blades running. This would not happen. Well, yeah, but, I mean... I know. It looks cool. <laughs> it does look cool, but I'm like, there's a reason why you wear headsets inside helicopters, because you can't hear each other. And, like, and I'm like, you're not wearing it here. And I'm like, this is... I'm just... Uh, Maybe I'm... it's like one of them stealth helicopters that the army has. <laughs> yes, I can, I can see them... Uh, I can see them having... I can see Sado having a stealth helicopter. And then we're introduced, and then we cut to Paris, where we see... Uh, my cocaine. My cocaine. And here's one of my favorite lines of the Not entire... Not your cocaine, my cocaine. But, but what about my cocaine? <laughs> well, like, I want to have my cocaine. I want to do your cocaine with my cocaine. That's okay, fine. No free cocaine for you. <laughs> it was funny. Somebody was texting me, like, <laughs> like, uh, like asking me, as a joke, like, asking me for money, but... I'm like, uh, like, you, but you said you're not going to pay me back anyway, but I, well, I guess I have to cancel the blow and hookers and everything. <laughs> and I'm like, I think you can have the hookers take IOUs. I'm pretty sure that works like that. And he's like, I don't think Mr. T-Rex Arms is going to take an IOU. And I asked, your hooker's name is Mr. T-Rex Arms? He's like, yes. I'm like, okay. It's not like a Jurassic name to, for, to get attention for me. That's my bedtime. <laughs> I, think, I think you need to go to Dreamy Weemy Land. <laughs> Dreamy Weemy Land? <laughs> I don't know where he gets it from. And it, one of my favorite lines from Michael Cade here is that while he's doing his, I guess, his uh, his work or note-taking, he's doing that while he's in the, I don't, I don't want to say the auditorium, but like in the classroom, and he says, you didn't, and Cobb says, you never liked your office. Um... There's no, there's no room to think in that, that broom closet, which I, which I kind of find because there's sometimes when I just like, I need to think or need to be creative, like being in a tight space doesn't work. I need open space and everything. And so Michael Caine berates him for not going back to America or not using his skills for criminal actions. And he's like, I, I can't do anything else otherwise. So it's like, I, I have this, I, I have a particular set of skills. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he needs a new architect, so we're introduced to Ellen Page. Your feelings on Ariana, her new introduction, and how she goes throughout the movie. Um, she's the uh, she's the everyman in this uh, in this story. She's she happens to be a woman, okay? She's the every woman in okay. the story. She's the she's sur- every woman. There's only one. There's only- <laughs> Right, She's the fine. surrogate for the audience. Oh, okay. There we go. That, that makes sense. Um, and it's through her we actually start to find out a little bit more about this strange world that Christopher Nolan paints in here. And um, I really like her first couple of scenes with uh, Cobb to really flesh out, um, you know, what makes a dream um, a place where people can not only, you know, a lot of this movie is about how it's, how dreams are used to um, 
get things illegally, get information, you know, sabotage things. But there are some short little moments in this movie that um, really further develop the idea of living within a dream. Um, I find that the... I don't think it's the first time they go into the dream world, but um, the first time where um, Ellen Page creates the infinite mirror trick yes, and then touches the mirror and then everything breaks, that you really start to see what can be done um, in the world of, of a dream. And it's just about this idea of sort of being able to play God, but also living in that same universe that you create. And that I'd really, you could could probably come up with some really good um, side stories, some side plots about, you know, what goes on in the dream world that other characters experience, because there's a whole den of them and uh and Yusef's M- yeah and Mumbasa yeah that um he says they they don't come here to dream they come here to live right and they've literally been dreaming for years yeah and and we I, I love like how it kind of like adheres to screenplay logic like one of the ideas for screenplays is for for scene structure is to get in as late as possible and get out as early as possible and so we don't see that we don't see Leonardo DiCaprio and Ariana leave the school, go to the play, go to their hideout, and hook up to the machine, and then end up in the dream world. We just immediately cut to the dream world at their location at the cafe, and then we see the first kind of real huge. Like, I mean, sure, we had the the palace flooded in the first big action sequence, but we have the the cat the world implode upon itself with all the the market stands blowing up and glass flying everywhere, which a lot of it was done in camera, but also a lot of it was augmented with CGI because you had to at this point. And then after that, we get introduced to the idea of the subconscious really turning against itself, and we see Maul come and, and freaking stab Ariana at one point. <laughs> and I love that. Like, he says, like, uh, Cobb says, like, it's my subconscious. How am I supposed to deal with this? Like, how, how am I supposed to control it? I can't. And there's one point where, like, the subconscious, like, projections start, like, uh, grabbing hold of Ariana. And, like, Cobb says, hey, get away from her. I'm like, what the hell is it? The subconscious is not going to do anything, especially if you say that. Uh, um, and, and I love how we have this moment where we, we, we see how Christopher Nolan just ripped off the action sequences from Doctor Strange years before he even came out, man, with the seas folding in on itself. I mean, what a hack. I mean, what kind of person would just rip off somebody else's action sequences again? Hmm. I'm just going to leave that there. My feelings of Doctor Strange is summed up in that sarcasm. (laughs) (laughs) And what? That's strange. Oh, ha, 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 ha. Somebody call a doctor. I think uh, I think I need help. A doctor or the doctor? This is important. I'd rather the doctor. Okay. Wait, you think I was going to just say a doctor? Yeah. 
You think you can just rip us off and we'll not do anything? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, son of a bitch. Um, and I love, like, one of the uh, ways how Nolan kind of grounds these situations of how the dream world is, is that instead of just the lockdown camera that he shoots with handheld cameras, so you do feel it the kind of documentary feel while these huge VFX sequences are happening mm -hmm. and kind of makes his reality a little more believable because otherwise it could just be so artificial and you're just like, it could be as like the Star Wars prequels, like I don't believe any of that is there. I feel like three quarters of that is there and the rest of it is fake. No, this, this definitely feels like you're living in that real world. Um, especially just walking through... The streets of Paris when it's empty, and a couple of the early dream sequences to even the shots where, you know, the, the city becomes a 3D city where they just start walking up um, the side of the road. Mm -hmm. uh, it, 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 he has this way of making these really difficult... Um, not action set piece, but in this case, uh, um, an effect set piece, really r ultra realistic. And we'll see it again later in the movie when Arthur is in the hotel hallway and gravity is being played around with um, in the second layer of the final dream. Because chaos is like gravity. Uh, do you regret doing this now? I do. Do you feel it now, Mr. Krabs? <laughs> and so, once uh, Ariana, even though she's uh, shocked by what could happen in the dream, she's uh, addicted to it. And, and so, Cobb's talking to Arthur, and he says, we need a forger, so he goes to Mombasa to pick up Tom fucking Hardy! <laughs> uh, straight off his... Straight out of Compton and straight out of uh, Bronson, which is the big movie he did before this. Um, I love the moment where he's talking to him, and we have the Cobalt industry like lackeys watching them. And Leo asks, like, what is that uh, contract, dead or alive? I don't know. Uh, go towards them and see if they start shooting at you. <laughs> and so they run into, so Hardy runs interference from him, and we launch into this uh, action sequence, which I think is arguably the best action sequence of the movie. I think so. I mean, it's one... It's the most exciting, yeah. in my opinion. I mean, I, I, I do love, like, the big climax at the snowy uh, hospital near the end. And, like, one of the criticisms that some people have had with Nolan is he's not the greatest action director of, like, how assembling things. But for some reason, this sequence just really works for me. It does. It's got a bit of an Indiana Jones feeling to it. I'm not sure if it's the setting or if it's um, just the set piece itself running away through a... Uh, Somewhat desert African type village, right? Um, but yeah, I got the first time I watched, it, I got like this big um, Raiders of the Lost Ark feel to it, right? And I think the sequence, and the best one of the best things about the sequence is uh, is one moment where it's we're we're behind Leonardo DiCaprio's character, well, presumably stuntman, and some dude with a cart like with bags, I guess like a rice or what have you, runs and he immediately just jumps on top of it and just keeps running. He, like, kind of parkours over <laughs> the uh, the cart. And I think one of the things that makes the sequence so um, engaging is Hans Zimmer's score, yes. just called Mombasa. 
And I remember I was texting you once over the summer. Yeah, uh, not too long ago. I was on a walk and it was just going through my shuffle and I came on. And I'm like, I'm wearing cargo shorts and, and sneakers. I'm like, this is not like my traditional exercise clothes. Uh, exercise clothes. I'm just out for a walk. That truck came on. I'm like, all right. And I just ran for the entire track. And it was like, I, I feel like I was in a Bourne movie. Like, I had to run here. And I probably looked a little strange. Like, somebody dressed in, like, kind of traditional summer clothes is running around the neighborhood in circles. Not in circles. Like, I was going around. It was a kind of a cul-de-sac. And it, was, it wasn't like, no! It's a dead end for rich people. <laughs> what? Cul-de-sac. It's a dead end for which people? Rich people. Oh, <laughs> this is rich people. I'm like, do we hang people? Do we hang witches at cul-de-sacs? Is that pup? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, no. Uh, I, no, yeah. Uh... Has pup ever been on this podcast? No. <laughs> you never interviewed him for Wizard of Oz. No, but uh, I haven't interviewed Tones either. So I think I need to interview him first before I interview Pop. I in- I did interview Dietrich. Oh yeah. I, 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 fuck, I haven't seen him in over a year. No, not a whole year. When did we see him last? It's been months. It's been a while. It's been a while since uh, you brought it up. You deserve this. Oh, the last time we saw him, he died in Patchog. Yes, he did. <laughs> uh, not really. He's still alive, folks. Don't worry. At least we- <laughs> Metaphorically. Yeah. Um, and one of my favorite parts of this action sequence is when uh, Leo ducks down an alleyway and they... The buildings become so close, it gets stuck. Oh yeah, and it's just like and it's like a Winnie the Pooh movie. Like think thin, think thin, and just and he, I want to like add like a cartoon, like a <laughs> sound as he gets unstuck, unsticks himself, and, and it culminates with like Leo makes a left, and we see the the you know it's a bad guy in any European movie. They're driving Black Range Rovers, <laughs> and he immediately turns around. And there's a dude in front of him, and Saito, with the fucking clutch, opens the door of his sedan and knocks the dude the fuck out. And he's like, uh, need, need a lift, uh, Mr. Cobb? And Cobb, his head first dives in, always colliding with Saito. <laughs> um, we're introduced to Yusef as the person that will be their chemist for it. And <clears throat> as I voice breaks there, I'm going through puberty again on the microphone, folks. It's okay, Peter Brady. <laughs> That's true. Um... We see, like we mentioned before, of all the people sleeping for, apparently, like, they come for hours of the real time, but it could be for years yes. in the, the dream world. Um, and this is where one of the big, like, articles and kind of things that people noticed about this movie is that this movie is almost like an allegory for filmmaking itself. And that a lot of the key characters are standards for filmmaking roles that... Cobb would be the director, Arthur would be the producer, Ariana is the production designer, Eames would be an actor, Saito would be the studio. Mm. And how that Robert Fisher, Killian Murphy's character, is the audience. That is cynical to what has happened. He's seen it before, and then they have to convince him that this is that this is a real idea and this is something that the journey they must go on. And I think it was cracked I think it was cracked.com was like the first person who brought this up. And another thing, one of the things I really love about it is they, everybody starts to build the team of what they need to do. And we see Arthur showing uh, Ariana, like, these weird ways to construct the worlds, like the, um, uh, I forget the name of the steps. The, the never-ending loop. Oh, the, um, the paradox. The paradox, but there's, like, there's like a pen something, not pen and teller or anything. He's like, it's magical, but it's not like that. Um... 
I forget the name of it. It's going to come, it's going to wake me in the middle of the night. And I'm going to be mad. Um, so at the same time, we get this, we see Cobb going into these dream worlds and Ariana becoming very suspicious about this. Even to the point that she decides when Cobb was dreaming, jumps in with him to see what he's dreaming about. Never jump into a stranger's dreams. I mean, SpongeBob has taught us anything. It's never to jump into a stranger's dreams because you're just going to screw oh, it that's up. That's right. Wow. Did SpongeBob predict Inception before we did do? Christopher Nolan rip off SpongeBob. <gasps> People are going to hate me doing that Inception bomb, aren't they? Yeah, probably. As much as I'm doing Leo's scratchy voice where he wants to talk dramatic. Anyway, uh, as we find out that <laughs> that there's, a, there's an elevator, an elevator. Uh, <laughs> we have a collection of memories that he's keeping Maul alive and subconscious. Now... Is this healthy? No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Is that bad? It's not good. <laughs> and uh, I love the fact that he doesn't face uh, James and Philippa in the, like, the last memory they, we see before he ran away. And that the, one of the last memories where he keeps Maul herself is in the hotel room that, that she had killed herself in. And we have... Your favorite line in the movie that she's, that uh, Maul says to Ariana here. You're waiting on the train. For a train. For, for a train. I mean, uh, I mean, it's one of those things that I just kind of roll my eyes at because it's, maybe it's because you kind of like ruined it for me. Because Probably. You, because you ruined a lot of things for me. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Is that bad? Yes. All right, that's fair. Um, and so they agreed to... And the whole idea is that Robert Fisher's father is dying and Robert Fisher's going to take over the company. Tom Berenger is the kind of consigliere to the family right here. The idea is to wait for, find an opportunity to get Robert Fisher, usually for a long flight. And that's when they'll perform Inception. Not one, not two, but three dreamscapes they're going to create for him. A dream within a dream within, within a, a dream. dream. Boom. <laughs> And I was there is a Rick and Morty episode where they make fun of it. They, they do it exactly. That's a show I have to watch. I might go home after this and watch it. Uh, it's on Netflix. No. Damn it. I, I know. Uh, but there was one where they – that Rick decides to go into Morty's uh, math teacher's dreams in order to get him to change the idea of uh, <laughs> his grades. And that it, it opens up like them on an airplane and they're there like to uh, uh, convince him otherwise. So – more, uh, Rick grabs a bunch of the soda bottles from the uh, stewardess's cart and straps it to his chest to make it look like a bomb. He's like, ah, I'm not going to come with Jihad! Give him a good grade so I don't, I'll blow up the plane! And the teacher pulls out two Abdul's N16s and starts firing them <laughs> in the cabin. And they're bo- and Rick and Morty are taking cover behind the scenes. Like, oh, like, what more? Rick, what, what, what are we going to do? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Morty. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great school teacher. Who thought he had an overactive imagination? We have to go within a dream, within a dream. Otherwise, we're going to die. It's like that, that movie, uh, Inception, you like to, you like to, to talk about. Uh, fucking hurts to do Rick's voice. <laughs> <laughs> and so they keep going within dreams, within dreams. I think they go, like, five or six levels deep to the point they get into, like, their version of Freddy Krueger called Scary Terry. And they go into his dreams and his nightmares that he's a failure as a dream demon. And, like, he punctuates every sentence with bitch as a parody for, of Freddy Krueger. Anyway. And so, 
Ariana thinks it's a bad idea to go into the dreamscape with Cobb because Amal being such a liability, yet doesn't warn anybody. Yeah, that was strange. Yeah. I mean, and then we find that Robert Fisher's father has died, and he's going to be flying a, fl- a flight from, is it from Sydney to L.A.? Yeah, Sydney so, to LAX. And so they decide, like, okay, and Saito has bought the airline. I love that line where they're talking about, like, we have to buy off everybody on the plane. Like, like I, bought, I bought the airline. I thought it was necessary. <laughs> and so they're all in first class. They, uh, uh, cop fucking roofies. Yeah. He roofies Very Fisher. Very I mean, with all the sexual harassment uh, stuff coming out of Hollywood, I'm like, so, so that's how easy it is. Like, oh, oh. Ugh. Yeah, Ugh, this is gross. Let's move away from this joke. This just joke uh, crashed and burned. Yeah, this joke ain't gone nowhere positive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Killy Murphy's out cold, um, and so they go into the first dreamscape, which is kind of like a, a nameless city, and it's kind of it's Yusef's dream at this point, and it's rainy because he been drinking too much champagne uh, while they're while they were waiting to start the dream up, <laughs> and so. Everybody gets in their cars, um, except for, like, Eames and Arthur and Saito steal a cab. And I love the fact that they, they pick up uh, Fisher, and they hold the gunpoint, and that's when the real um, trauma or, like, real action starts to kick in is that, A, we have projections firing guns back at them. Yeah. And a fucking train comes out of nowhere! <laughs> I think that's the... the strangest um, twist in this movie. Like, you're not expecting a train in the middle of downtown city streets. Yeah, and I love the fact that it was a... not. Re- it was not really digital. It was a train car on top of, like, we- like actual tires, and they, just, they kind of built the chassis of, like, the train tires around it, so they could literally drive up and down the street. And I love the fact that it's, like, it's immediately just... Takes out Cobb's car at one point. You're like, it's like seeing uh, the cows being picked up by a Twister or anything, or seeing the the Wicked Witch of the West in uh, flying around in Wizard of Oz. Like, this this does not compute. And so we're coming to this huge gunfight, which is like almost like another uh, nod to Michael Mann's Heat, which has a huge gunfight in a financial district and near this the end of the second act of the movie. What do you feel? What were your feelings in this action set piece? I was really confused uh, uh, the, the first time I so I was like, okay, they could go into the gym. I knew that this was a long movie, so I kind of expected, you know, a long road ahead from here. But like, you know, how they had it planned out was like, oh, this is going to be, you know, relatively simple at the beginning. Right. And then all of a sudden, just. Boom! <laughs> it immediately, and I love it. Immediately becomes super suspenseful, and then even more so once you find out, uh, no, we won't wake up if we get shot. We'll just go into like this nether world. Well, yeah, we'll go to limbo, uh, to limbo, to the wall. No, no, really, no, no. But- no. What? <laughs> uh, There's one part where, like, one of the projections is behind the cab where Fisher's uh, in, 
and is right behind me, starts firing through the rear windshield, and Arthur puts it in reverse and pins the dude between the cab and the car behind him, so his legs are being kind of crushed by. Yeah. And then Eames still has to shoot him, and then they, they push the car away, and just, they, the body literally flings away down the, down the street a little bit. What you find out is uh, Saito has been hit in the crossfire, and not in that awesome commercial for the game of the same crossfire of the same name. But I love how like my notes because I was writing so small. Saito is hit, but hit is and hit is so close. So it's like Saito, I uh, shit. That's what it looks like in my notes here. Uh-huh. Um, and you find out, like you said, that if they, unlike any other dream that they've been in, if they get they die in the dream, they'll immediately go back to the world above. Um, this won't happen. They'll be stuck in limbo because they've gone. They've gone too far. Yeah, the sedatives that they used. Um, I don't know what. what do they say what uh, sedative they took? Just a really strong compound in Yusef's. Uh, al- I guess I don't know uh, chemistry. To know where I almost said alchemy. Like this is close. To, like alchemy that is chemistry. Uh, than chemistry. Ugh. Hey, you know uh, that guy in Harry Potter. He played alchemy in that show Flash. <laughs> Did you know he was in Harry Potter? <laughs> he hates lightning bolts. He hates Harry. He hates Barry. He hates people with names that rhyme. He's got a real rough streak ahead. Ah, uh, man. I am the future Flash. <sighs> okay. How irresponsible is that for Gob? Not to tell anybody that. Um, I, I think, uh, Arthur has the line, so you're beginning to see that uh, there's a lot of things that Cobb does that he tells you not to do. Yeah, but Arthur fucked up, too, that he didn't realize that Fisher had military training against... That's true, too. I mean, but it does give one of the most best performances because Leonardo DiCaprio, one of his strengths is being is yelling and being very loud. And so him and Joseph Gordon-Levitt just yelling at each other. And we're in this handheld camera scene, and it's pretty much just like following him around that the the action is just taking place. I kind of feel bad for Ellen Page. She's just like limbo. What is that? And like she's just being constantly confused about what is going on here. And so they realize, okay, if we just go down to the next level, and that it, the, since time is slower in each dream level, and the further they go down, the more time they'll have. They immediately have to. They have to. Start working fast, so Eames turns himself into Tom Berenger, and it starts to kind of break Fisher's. Uh, I don't want to say his psyche, but his kind of defenses against what is going on here. And I think uh, there's so many really great moments of acting in here, but Killian Murphy kills it in this moment when he's recounting what happened between him and his father. That the last word his father said was disappointed. Ouch. Yeah. I mean, like, how do you react to that? I mean, that, like, you thought, like, you have a loved one who you think is proud of you, and that's the last sentiment they part before they leave this plane of existence. How does one react to that? Uh, That's one of the, um, the core issues of this story. We have, on one hand, we have... Cobb um, accepting this job. We didn't talk about him, but the reason he accepts the job is so that Saito can um, talk to some very important people that will clear his record 
in America so that he can go back to see his kids. Yeah. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have um, you have Killian Murphy's character try to get that redemption from his father. Right, a catharsis for, of their relationship. Yeah. And which I I wonder – I'll say that the thought until the end. But we also – we find out the true nature of how Maul died. Yeah. That they went – that Cobb and Mal went to limbo consciously, were there for decades, built their own world, and then left and – Maul couldn't accept the world that they were in. She did not believe that the world they were in was real. And she just wanted to... We, had, we just simply had to kill ourselves to go back to the real world. They thought she was still in dreaming. So much so that she had herself declared sane by three shrinks. Okay. Does that not raise flags with somebody? Yeah, that probably should. I'm not sure who these uh, three shrinks were. I was say, but they sh- should have been shrunk. I mean, like, what kind of quack doctors did she track down for this? Uh, I mean, no, I'm just thinking. Maybe it's uh, Killian Murphy's character from uh, Batman Begins. Yeah. Well, he's definitely insane. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt about that. I think there's no way I can treat him here. Uh, we have to move him to Arkham Asylum where I can properly treat him. <laughs> it's a test, Sammy. Test this, you fucking quack. <laughs> Oh, it's not often I get to quote that scene from Memento, so I'm proud of myself there. I'm gonna... Or the words of Rick and Morty. Yeah, Morty, don't break your arm jerking yourself off. <laughs> and so we find out that Maul um, arranged, arranged that they would be at the same hotel they always go to for their anniversary, and she jumped out the window from the adjoining room. Now, not even adjoining, like the building across, it's across the, the street. Yeah. So I presume she broke into that room. Probably. Yeah. And I guess nobody would look at the uh, trajectory of which room, which building she actually fell out of. Well, I'm, they probably didn't have Barry Allen from Central City. Uh, forensics? Forensics, yeah, that that's the word. I th- <laughs> yeah, to analyze the blood patterns and everything. Yeah, so they CSI that shit up. I yeah. Mean, yeah I mean, that, that's, a, that's a proper term, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the words of Dan's thing. <laughs> Uh, um, if they had Dr. Alchemy here, he would have proven it that it was foul play there. And so... You would have played Metahumans. Yeah, yeah. Metahumans. <laughs> and so, the projections are closing in. They got a... They, that uh, Fisher comes up with a five-digit code that they will l- learn to be important later. The, and the projections are really starting to hammer in on the, the uh, location... And so they realize, all right, we got to get moving. We got to get to the second level. Time to go mobile. <laughs> Time to go mobile. Um, and so Arthur tries to provide cover for them, trying to fight off the projections. And he can't get one guy in particular. That's when Eves comes in. Probably has one of, another favorite line of mine. <laughs> Don't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling. As he comes over with his six-shell um, grenade launcher. <laughs> Blows the dude up, and I love Joseph Gordon's face. Just looking back at him, like <laughs> it's kind of like that moment in Indiana Jones: Last Crusade where he takes the Luger and he shoots through the five guys, the five Nazis, 
<laughs> they all fall over. Or another Harrison Ford moment is when he finally uses Chewbacca's full uh, blaster. <laughs> yeah. I, I like, like this. this. <laughs> Which I always find like, kind of baffling. Like 40 years of friendship and you've never used your buddy's weapon? Okay, man, that's not, that's not a little inappropriate now that I phrase it like that. Phrasing. <laughs> Uh, you talking about the gun or something else there? Uh, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> and so Yusuf has to drive the van away from the projections to the design location and use a kick to get everybody the hell out of the dream world. As everybody goes to sleep, and so they enter the second level while Yusuf is driving the van as he's being descended upon uh, enemies on in a myriad of vehicles. And... So now we're in the second level, which is in the hotel, mm-hmm. where one of the greatest internet memes was born in this oh, scene. Yes. And what Tremendous. meme is that? Tremendous. Oh, Leonardo glaring a meme. <laughs> All right. What were your favorite memes using that face? Oh, I should have looked up a bunch of them before we did this. Um, There's always one that comes to mind. It's like... And it's usually it's in the three. It's usually Leo face Killian and back to Leo doing the the scowl. And the first one is, you ever thought about putting in the other hole? Cut to Killian. Why? I don't want her to get pregnant. <laughs> Leo face. <laughs> uh, I think there was. I think there was one um, when we were in Oswego. I can't remember if it was um, the Inception. Poster trailer or the the Inception poster or um or if it was the the Leo meme, but it was an NFL meme and it was like Tony Romo starring in uh, Interception, but with the Inception um, style font mm-hmm. on the on um. On the poster. Right. Uh, and I'm pretty sure... It, uh, yeah, maybe it wasn't an NFL meme. I don't know. There have been a lot of good ones. Yeah, we've got the phones with us. Yes. And so, while this is going on... Through the interwebs. Yes. Um, Cobb suggests we're going to go with the Mr. Charles play, which Arthur objects to, but they go with it anyway. And the idea is that... Oh, here we go. First hit. Okay. 24 great Inception memes. <laughs> go on. That the idea is to tell the Mark that they're in the dream, but he is there actually there to protect them. But what could happen is they could trigger the projections and the subconscious to fight itself. But luckily, Leo being a smooth customer, which despite a few hiccups, is able to convince Killian Murphy that he is there to protect them. And your memes are, sir? Um... Any day now. Oh, and it's still loading. This is a very small thing. Uh, <laughs> Sounds like a personal problem, sir. Small thing. Oh, oh, oh! Yeah. Yeah. Was that a Freudian slip there? <laughs> and so, I love the moment where, like, the subjections, the projections are kind of looking at everybody screwily, and Arthur's like, "Kiss me, it'll maybe it'll work." Uh, and Ariana kisses him. They're still looking. Yeah, I thought that would work. <laughs> and just walks away. So I found a good one. First, uh, first, f- first, uh, frame is, Leo, so where is the Batman? 
Gillian, for the last time, I'm not the scarecrow. <laughs> Leo face. <laughs> I told you my drugs would take you to places. I never said it would be places that you'd wanted to go. And Saito is, seems to be doing a lot better. Um, uh, we find that blonde woman grabs Saito, pushes him into the elevator. Very uh, attractive blonde. We find that it's Eames in disguise. I love the infinity mirrors that it reveals him. And I love the Tom Hardy smirk on his face right there. Because it looks like Tom Hardy's having like the base blast of the world making this movie. Um, Lee, uh, Cobb defends um, Fisher from projections. And Fisher almost shoots himself here. It's like, if I shoot myself, I'll just wake up. Like, no, 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 no. 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 <laughs> no, we think, we think you might be heavily sedated. You might end up in limbo. So give me the gun. Okay. And so he convinces them to go to the room that they, that's kind of a breakdown of like some of the numbers that were brought up in the first level. And we find out that the, the ploy of using Tom Barringer's character, the consigliere to, uh, um, Robert is kind of working. He's starting to not trust him. Because they lead him to that room, and they find out that he is that that Fisher is becoming uh, untr- is becoming very untrustworthy of that character. They knock him out, saying they're going to go into his dream, but he's not really. But they actually go into Fisher's dream, and we head down to the third level of the ho- ho- the hospital. At the same time, on the first level, though, this is, this is going to be fun keeping track of. I mean, Boom. yeah, I mean, it must have been a bitch for Lee Smith to edit this thing. Now <laughs> we're trying to uh, articulate it here. Um, that um, Yusuf is trying to keep everybody calm and, or trying to keep the vehicle on the road and people on motorcycles and trucks coming at him. And I love the moment where the van goes off the road and tumbles over each itself going off like the freeway. And I know it sounds really weird to say freeway instead of highway because in the East Coast we don't have – we don't use the word freeways. We use the word highways as the way to articulate uh, or to describe uh, roads like that. And, uh, and I'm sitting here by myself uh, talking to myself. Sorry. I'm still looking at memes. Oh, for, for fuck's sake, man. If I want to talk to myself, I can just do that all – I can do that on my own without recording. We must go one level deeper. And then what? We must go one level deeper. Mm. <laughs> and so, this is when the cross, this is when it's that moment when the van is tumbling and Arthur's there to protect the, the team as they go down to the third level. What? <laughs> what the fuck is so funny? I'm going to implant an idea while you dream so I can see my kids in America. Why not have Michael Caine fly your kids to France? <laughs> <laughs> That's also true. <laughs> hmm. We're just taking a crowbar to this movie while we're at it, aren't we? Well, that's what we've done with every movie and every show. Everything we review, we kind of playfully I mean, nitpick it. I mean, these aren't, you know. They're, they don't ruin the experience no, anymore. absolutely not. Um, and so this is when Arthur's anti-gravity sequence takes place oh, because the band is tumbling over itself in the first level. And I love how the fact that they did this, it was pretty much like how, what they would do for like 2001 Space Odyssey or a Fred Astaire movie where the entire set is built on a gigantic gimbal and the camera is locked in place. And I love the fact that 
there was a camera dolly system built into the carpet of it, so the cam- and it was remote controlled, so it can go up and down, tilt up, it can go forward and backwards on, along the track, tilt up and down, pan left and right, as Joseph Gordon-Levitt and the projectors are having this fight as the room tumbles over itself. What did you think about when you saw that for the first time? I thought it was insanely cool how they did it. And then to watch the behind the scenes on it, that was like the fact that they could do that in such a simple way. Um, like a lot of Nolan's special effects works just incredible because it doesn't, it doesn't feel fake. It doesn't feel, um, like you're watching a movie. It just feels really natural and I think that's why I like this movie so much is because it's so zany and crazy and on the surface unbelievable but when you actually watch it and see how it, it it's presented to you it does it does keep that level of of believability about it right and because and it's one of the things that, because this movie was shot on 35mm film with certain sequences shot in 65mm and VistaVision. The VistaVision was usually used for aerial photography. VistaVision was kind of paramount's answer to large format photography in the 1950s. You think of a lot of Hitchcock films was used when he was working with paramount like uh, Vertigo, North by Northwest, um, to Catch a Thief, I believe those are the three he did in this division. Um, but there's, there's a question, like, why didn't he use IMAX for Inception? Because he had such a good time and it was such, it was such a beneficial experience using it on The Dark Knight. And Nolan's uh, response to that was is because IMAX gives us such a big and operatic feel to whatever you're filming. And the fact that we have so in the dream sequences are going to be filled with so many kind of fantastical elements, using the IMAX formula may have thought could have pulled you out of it. And then he's like, all right, no, we should keep it as as real as possible within the confines of a fantastical situation. That's why he decided to do 35mm and 65mm. And th- this, is, this is your technical breakdown. <laughs> and moving on to level three. Boop. And now getting off at level three, and so we're at the snowy uh, landscape here, and this is, and Nolan's been very frank that he's a huge James Bond fan, and we've even made jokes about this like here, and some people even said like this is his inception, this is his audition for to do a Bond movie at this point, <laughs> and this we find that they have to ski down to this military hospital at the bottom of the mountains, and it's pretty much like his favorite or one of his favorite uh, James Bond movies on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which I think is a great uh, Bond movie. Suck it, uh, Dakota. I know you don't like it, but it's a fucking awesome movie. This is a testament to see if he actually listens to the episode or not, if, if I get an angry text from him or not. If I don't get into text, I know he doesn't listen, and now my heart will be broken. And so Eames decides to go and ha- provide diversion and lure everybody away from the building what do you think of this set piece as, as, as Eames is luring everybody away and everybody's trying to get into the building itself? Um, pretty cool. It, it kind of gives you that feeling of like, you know, siege, the uh, castle under siege. Because um, you have Eve's just trying to wreck as much shit as possible. Right. And you have um, 
we are just like sniping people. Um, it really gave me like this, um, this, uh, kind of like when I used to play Call of Duty, this like, um, this familiarity with like storming a base and, you know, just, you know, <laughs> alpha team goes downtown, gold team goes uptown, gold team rules, <laughs> you know, that sort of stuff. San Dimas High School football rules. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I love like there's is really interesting fact because it could be very confusing because everybody's wearing white camo yeah. snow outfits. But there was one way to, to distinguish one team from another. Leo's team is all their weapons are snow color. They're all white. Mm. Well, the bad guys are all using traditional black metal uh, guns. So that's how you can distinguish one team from another, which I thought was kind of unique. And so so Cobb and Ariana are providing cover for um, Eames and Fisher as they get into the hospital. They're going to find out what is in the vault that, that, that Fisher is really hiding and what the, and what the idea is behind them. And that that's when Maul shows up again and caps Fisher. And right after um, Cobb doesn't shoot her when he first sees her. Right. Which I find, I mean, because I love what Ariana says, like, to Cobb when he's, like, Cobb is sniping uh, projections of uh, the bad guys around, the, the protectors of the building around. Like, are you killing off part of Fisher's brain there? And like, no, no, they're just projections. And then that's when he hesitates to kill Maul, and he wonders, like, am I doing the right thing or not? So, was he killing off part of Fisher's brain there? Hmm. This man's very irresponsible for, with, with his actions. I know he's desperate. Well, I mean, he's, he's a thief. He's a dream thief. So, I mean, I think any, uh, any moral characterization you wanted to make for Cobb ends right there. Yeah, and it's one of the things that, like, um, a lot of Nolan's uh, main characters are kind of tortured and flawed individuals, whether it be Al Pacino in Insomnia or 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 Lenny in Memento, or even Bruce Wayne to a degree. So uh, Fisher dies. Saito is near death, and they realize that if we we fucked up. We fucked up, and and, and Yusuf has made it to the bridge. He started the EFPF song. Um, and he's starting to kick as they've got to drive the van into the river. Living in a van down by the river! Sorry, I had to. Encourageable. Are you saying that's a bad thing for me? No. Okay. And so, and now Yusuf has driven the van off the off the bridge and he's now in free fall. They've missed the initial kick of going up. And I love the moment where... Yusuf is backing the van up as one of the projections in level one is firing at him. And Yusuf just flips him the bird as he's doing reverse. <laughs> and then Arthur's like, shit, now I have no gravity. How am I supposed to follow the kick up? And he gets a very clever idea to yank out the phone cord, tie them all, everybody up like a gigantic sandwich, and puts them in the elevator, strap bombs to the brakes of the elevator, which I do wonder, would the gravity still work then if everything is kind of weightless there? 
Yes, because then the um oh, because the kick, the blast, right? Okay, gotcha. Um, and so Cobb decides to let's go into uh, and Arion decide to go into limbo to get Fisher and now Saito because or like Saito's gonna die moments uh, moments away. Now it's up to Eames to protect them the entire way. And so we we transport the limbo. We didn't really get to talk about it before the kind of the idyllic limbo that Maul and and Cobb had created. What were your feelings on the, that version and the version we see here at the end? It's um very bleak. It's like sort of like um. Picture entropy as the as the universe starts to decay. Mm-hmm. That's what it reminds me of. Really? Yeah. It always reminded me of like this futuristic type world or society that was slowly dying off. Mm-hmm. I think it's because a lot of the buildings are crumbling in ruin. Um, especially when he first washes up. On the beach, both times you see just like Pagoda. That's the name of the building. That's the name of the building. <laughs> you see, I knew I remember. I'm sorry. It's a pagoda. I apologize. A pagoda? God damn it. Tom, can you let me off the hook for all time's sake? Can't do it, Sally. Anyway, go on. Uh, yeah, it just reminded me of this um, decaying world, which I guess is a good. Um, Metaphor for their relationship, Malin, Cobb. Yeah, and like the, like the buildings are almost like monoliths, just going up into the clouds. Yeah, like that's how tall they are. And I love that moment where it's when we see the flashback of them building their world. We see them building sandcastles in the foreground, and Cobb knocks one of the castles over. And in the background, you just see one of the buildings topple over from an invisible force, obviously done by him. And that. We find out because Cobb has hinted that he knows Inception works for a reason. Yeah, but we've never known why. And the entire time we see him spin the top, and we believe that it is his totem that's keeping them safe, or keeping himself that he knows that he's safe. Um, and so we walk through Limbo, and it's and in such a decaying world as compared to was like you said, it's almost like a metaphor for their relationship, and we see buildings that they were kind of a part of or very important and we see cops we see uh mall's first home their first apartment and then the building they choose to live in that the building the exterior is a high rise but the interior is of their home in the states and we find out inception works because they grow they did grow old together and he performed inception by leaving the top spinning in the safe of mall's I guess childhood home, and then Maul would know this isn't real. Despite their paradise, it's artificial. Mm-hmm. And then they have to return to their real world and decide to kill themselves in one of the most violent ways possible. In front of a train. Like, seriously, you could have just jumped off the fucking balcony of your apartment. But no. Yeah, I never understood, like... I, it, I mean, I guess he had to convince... Mall to do it, right? Yes. So, well, I mean, maybe he didn't convince her. Maybe it's just like 
you know, we're just lying on a train track because he's the he's the one looking at the train. But how, she must have known that train was coming. I guess. I mean, it is a train. It's they're hard to miss. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wonder if it's like although, one of those. <laughs> although living on Long Island, you'd be surprised how many people don't miss them. No, I mean, <clears throat> you. Well, there's a lot of people who do it a on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> That's happened a little more often than we'd like to admit. Um, another thing is that maybe they're cob. <sighs> Leo face. Um. And Leo agrees to. Cobb agrees to stay in limbo with Maul in order to find Saito if he gives up. If she gives up Fisher, which she does, um, and Fisher's up on the balcony. I love how, like it's kind of like our cartoonishly. He's just like hogtied <laughs> on the balcony right there. Um, Mal, how did Maul find Fisher so quickly? Yeah, I guess the plot deemed it. And I, I never understood this part of the movie because it's like all set up so perfectly. Like what what is Limbo? Is Maul just like the 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 Satan of Limbo? Like omnipresent, he is, knows where everything's going like on. The master of that domain? Like I, I I never really quite understood this part of the movie because I I think it's if it's not a metaphor for hell, it's certainly a metaphor for purgatory. Right. Because it just seems everlasting and you can't, and it can't go any further, but you can only, you'd hope to only go up at that point. Yeah. Um, Mal stabs a cop. Ariana shoots uh, Mal. Um, tosses Fisher off the balcony and she jumps herself. And at the same time, it's when... See, here's another confusing thing. If you, if you die in... Uh, Limbo. In limbo, you just go back I mean, up. That's at least that's one of the rules they were kind. Of, they did set it up like that's how you could get out. I mean, you'd have to like that's why they said like if we die here, we go immediately to limbo. Then we we don't get spent eons trying to find you, despite it being like four square blocks. Yeah, that. Uh, uh, I know it, it is. It's the most confusing part of the movie because they spend so much time worrying about it. And the end result, the the end escape, is really quite simple. Yeah, I mean, it, I guess his idea is just to build up tension, that the fear of limbo, rather than limbo itself being kind of. I, I mean, guess. yeah. I was part of a conversation when I posted into the group and part of Real Fans for Real Movies that I was watching this for a podcast. That um, previous guest uh, host, that guy Mel, said that he believes this is. Nolan's most overrated movie in part of his filmography, and that generated that generated a discussion in there, and how I did feel like those feelings were valid for a while. I mean, because Inception was everywhere at that point. Yeah. Um, that it just feel like me just being very contrarian to things that are just going on in pop culture, and like maybe I just want to turn my back against it. But another frequent listener, uh, Justin Lee, he brought up the fact that like. This could be lumped into a certain selection of Nolan's movies that some that some people consider that the third act kind of falls flat. That it has great setup, but the payoff is a little iffy, or the landing's a bit spotty. I would call the land. It, I wouldn't say that this ruins the movie. No. Um. 
Winter's next movie, we'll talk about the ending. Yeah, that's one of the movies that's probably its most overrated, and where the third act just caves in on itself. Yeah. That the ideas were too big for its... Yeah. Exceeded its grasp. Yes. Um, I see what you did there. Uh, I didn't even mean it like that, uh-huh. but... Uh, 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 <laughs> of a bitch. bitch. <laughs> and so, we cut to the, the footage from the beginning of the movie where we find... I wonder how long was Cobb looking for Saito. I found Saito! <laughs> I found Saito. Guys, I found Saito. There is a collection of uh, videos on YouTube called... Uh, bad, bad NFL web reading. Bad, it's like... It's uh, from I, 2013. I forget which coach it was. I think it's... Um, no, this is Tom Brady. It was Tom, oh, it was Tom <laughs> Brady I'm saying. And the quote is like, Hey guys, I found Fido! I found Fido. And so periodically, uh, uh, our friend uh, Larry, Justin, and I will text each other, Guys, I found Fido! I mean, uh, Justin's going to his phone right now, and he's probably going to pull up numerous of conversations that we've probably done that, or any no, other... I'm just li- going to text that to Larry. Oh, okay. <laughs> He'll get a kick out of it. Hey, the kick. Speaking of the kick, that's when the kick is going on as the van hits the water. How's that for a fucking transition for you? Arthur blows the... Uh, blows the brakes on in the hotel in the elevator. Fisher is is resurrected in the third level. Goes into the huge safe where it's just like this weird Kubrick X two thousand one inside of a cubed room where his father is laid out. It's almost that kind of similar to like the design for the Tesseract in uh, Interstellar. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Ooh, good call. And we find out that it's. Robert Fisher's father is laid up, and he has a conversation with him, and, and played by the late Peter Postlewaite, and, <clears throat> excuse me, that Robert expresses, like, yes, you were disappointed in me for what I did. He's like, And he says, no, I was disappointed that you didn't want to build something on your own, that he has all the faith in the world for him. Now, is this a lie? I'm not sure because they're in his, they're in his subconscious. Right, and this is this is the inception that is working. For yeah, him. this is like how it's being played out. I'm not sure if it's a if it's a why. I think it's what he wants to believe. Okay, and because I love that moment where he goes into the safe that's next to the his father's bed, and it's the little. I forget what they call it. Pinwheel. That. Pinwheel. My bad. That, that it was in the photo that we saw earlier in the movie. Um, and, like, Killian Murphy does a great performance here getting upset by this as, as Peter Postlewaite dies. And then the kicks all line up, but everybody wakes up in the van. Nobody goes, nobody wakes up up. They're still trapped in the first level. Because we see the footage of everybody cl- Swimming out of the van and making it to the shore. Right. Um, Are they just waiting for Saito and Cobb to wake up? I don't think so. Yeah, because that's always confused me. Because I remember they pulled both of them out of the water. And I always kind of thought, I always remember it as everyone on the first level does wake up, 
but they wake up off camera because they're in the first level, and then I'm pretty sure it cuts back to um, Saito and um, Cobb mm-hmm. in um, in Limbo, right? And that's when he says, "Do you want to be an old man?" Pretty much taking it back to the start of the movie. Right. And then they kill each other to wake up. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts straight from that to Leo waking up on the plane. Right. And, so and, you, and everyone on the plane is already woke. Is already, has already waken up, awoken. Because and, and, and they had that moment where, like, Arthur asks Ariana, like, is he going to be okay? He's like, he's going to be fine. Well, they're still drenched in water and everything. And then we see Fisher on the other side of the river saying, like, I think I'm going to make, I'm going to make uh, my own future. And, like, we see um, Browning, Tom Berenger's character, and then we dolly around and we reveal that it's Tom Hardy actually sitting there with him. And then, like you said, we have that moment, the reprise of the opening scene where Saito realizes that he's in limbo. They kill each other and wake up and... It goes into now. I was thinking about this while driving home because I listened to this track. I listened to Hans Zimmer's "Time Driving Home." Now there are a lot of people who try to define a certain piece of music to an artist and say that is their definitive piece of music. Like for like John Williams, you can say like it's the Imperial March, or it is just the Star Wars theme, or the Indiana Jones the Superman theme. Uh-huh. <laughs> the fact that he can list probably about ten tracks yeah. tells you. What uh, he's about. Uh, Alan Silvestri is the Back to the Future theme or Predator. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith is Alien or First Blood or The Omen. Or you look at any musical artist. Howard Shore. Or Howard Shore. Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Anything from there. Anything from there or Silence Lent or you think of like any other artist or you think of like, you think, you, whether you can think about like um, Mizzaloo for Dick Dale um, and just like Master Puppets for Metallica or whoever. And you could sit and you could argue what track defines them. However, if I was going to define a track for Hans Zimmer, I think it would be this. Yeah. Despite the massive catalog he's done in his entire career. Now, this this definitely is best. I think his best soundtrack overall. Um, and I would say, time is the highlight of the album. Right. And if you look up any video essay or any montage online, yeah. you will find the backing track is usually this one. Like one of my favorites is that somebody took the speech from Charlie Chaplin's yep. The Dictator yeah. and put that behind it, which I thought was really cool. I mean, hell, I almost like made a video. With it. It, was, it was going back and forth between my 100 favorite movies or my favorite cinematography moments. I would just put time as like that would be the bed of how I would cut to. And we see that Saito has woken up, makes a phone call. They're going through customs. Which, speaking of, did you have to fill out a customs waiver or anything when you went to Canada? Uh, no. Um, I'd have to fill anything out. Okay. They pretty much just checked my passport, right. asked me, you know, where are you going? Well, when I was going into Canada, like, where are you going? How long are you staying? Uh, you know, stuff like that. Um, I had a really nice customs agent. He's... I told him I was going to be in downtown Montreal, and he was like, oh, yeah, you should go to, like, this place for dinner. 
he's got good sushi and stuff. And he's like, yeah, that street, uh, the street that you're going to be staying on is like, just, it's, it's a fun place to be. Did you end up going to that sushi place? We did not. Oh, we, okay. I don't know. Something about going to, um, sushi in Canada. I don't know. It just seemed far-fetched for you? Uh, not far-fetched, but... Fishy? <laughs> I'm super proud of myself for that one. I, I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> That's the little things in life that may give me joy. <laughs> Boss said he was going to replace my insides with bright colors and lights on Christmas. <laughs> and so, Cobb makes it through customs. Um, we see uh, Mike O'Kane pick him up at the airport. Welcome. And he brings it to his kids, and right before he sees his kids, Cobb spins the top one last time. And this is when we finally get to see the kids from the front again, for, for the first time, I should say. And he finally interacts with them, picks them up, and he walks outside with them. And we the music is, is comes to an end, and then we push into a dolly shot of the top spinning. Top is shaking, but we don't see it topple over. Now, there's numerous theories out there about if this is still a dream or not. The biggest thing, the reason why I don't think it's a dream, is that Cobb was always wearing his wedding band whenever he was in the dream. Mm, Yes. And he's not here. And we also, we never saw Michael Caine in his dream either. That's also true. But then again, that's not his totem. All this could be artificial like this whole entire story could be false for all we know the the entire like it could have been one it's a big... fake dream never happened <laughs> but what about you what are your opinions on the ending um i i like to use the theory that um in the dream world the totem the top never never falters never wobbles or or you know, appears like it's going to topple over. Um, and in the real world, or at, at the end, it does start to wobble. Right. So, wobble, baby, wobble, baby, wobble. No. <laughs> no, imagine Sebastian and no. Larry dancing to that. <laughs> Sorry. I don't need to imagine it. I've seen it. <laughs> it's, it's frightening enough. Hey, just be... Oh, all right, Larry's dancing, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, did he get back to you? No. Damn it. Um, so yeah, I, I like to subscribe to the theory that in the dream world, the the totem never appears that it's going to fall down. We see it a couple of times, and it just spins without any any sign that it's going to fall down. So I'm of the belief that no matter what, um, the end is is the real world. Right. Yeah, I also agree. And as I mentioned before, I, w- I didn't tell you about my first experience with this movie. I wanted to wait till the end. And it kind of sums up and it kind of goes into my feelings on the movie today is that Like I was saying, I was nervous to talk about The Dark Knight because it's such a monumental movie. Like, how do we cover that? And three hours later, we still could probably have gone on and on about that movie, you, Chris, and I. And I was nervous about 
telling this story, like I am, is that, <clears throat> is that like I, like I mentioned before on the podcast, like my mom had a drink while she was alive, she had a bad drinking problem. Um, and that the day I went to go see this, it was, I, I, I guess it might've, I don't know if I was off from school or not, or like, uh, like I didn't have classes, but uh, you probably would have been, it came out July. So. July. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Then, then like, so I was working that at that point. Yeah. And then, yes. So that's why my dad wasn't home here, but like, like my mom like had like, she was like, kind of like, she wasn't like a constant thing. It was like, it was a bin, it was like a binger that should be good for even almost like months at a time. Then like a really bad week or weekend would kind of, turn this house upside down and it was one of those times is that i was grabbing all my stuff i was going to leave i was going to go see the movie and then go to work afterwards and it was just one of those just one time that she was for some reason just very belligerent very angry and she would not let me leave and then she actually attacked me that she physically assaulted me and I had to defend myself for it. And I, he had to imagine that person. Like, and I'm the one, like, a lot of my family members turned their back on her and didn't want to help her. But I was there. I was constantly there for her. And then all of a sudden to have this kind of, have this, the person who gave birth to you and raised you and try, try to teach you right from wrong. And then said, for you to have done nothing wrong, to, you believe nothing wrong, to all of a sudden to ha- do that to you. And you've had to, visibly you had to restrain your mother and had to like, toss her away and then she never had raised a hand to me and it was just one of those and I'm sure there's people out there who've had far worse experiences than that and probably have dealt with that on a daily basis but like just within the context of my life it was something I never experienced before and it it, it made me wonder like what did I do wrong is there something wrong with me did I I deserve this and so I I escaped my house and ran and I got in my car and left and then that um, once them all end up being, if you like use video games at that point and then end up going to Inception. And I was, I never felt so low in my life. I never, I never felt so miserable. And, and I thought I could, it was kind of like those moments, like you'd never thought I could be happy again. And then this movie unspooled before my eyes and made me fall in love with what movies can do to you and what stories can do and how, a movie can affect you in a certain way and how it can help you in, in the worst of times or in the best of times. It can take you to different worlds. It can, it can reinvigorate you. I mean, I was so awestruck by this movie that like, I, I was literally chewing on the collar of my shirt because I was just so just wrapped up in the tension of the movie. Like, like by the end of the movie, my whole front collar was just... High-quality cotton. <laughs> it was just all wet and everything. I'm like, shit, now I gotta go to work like this. I'm like, this looks like I've just been drilling on myself for, like, an hour or so. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. It just looked ridiculous. And and I did go through that that phase, like, after the movie was over and everything, that it, was, it became so popular and everything, and I kind of wrote it off as this most overrated movie. But re-watching it for this podcast and having those feelings kind of, like, come back to me and that, that those memories um, was a testament that I think is just a really wonderful movie. And I do think it's still one of his best movies and it's one of the most important movies, at least from a personal standpoint. But um, let's get into 
how it affected his Nolan's career and how, like or just say about his favorite scenes. What would you say your favorite and least favorite scene in this movie would be? Favorite scene. I would say either the um the Mombasa chase scene mm-hmm. or Hmm. There's a couple of them. <laughs> See what what makes makes this movie so good is not just the scenes themselves, but like little tiny moments within the scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's a couple of really good lines. I love um, the fact the line that Saito has to Cobb. When they're talking on the helicopter platform, and it gets echoed again at the end of the movie, I, I guess it actually appears three times. Do you want to take a leap of faith, or do you want to become an old man filled with regret waiting to die alone? Mm-hmm. Just the way he delivers that line in the scene on the, the landing pad just really resonated with me the probably the second or the third time that I saw it and was able to process everything um, in the movie. I love Leo's in, in opening scene where he talks about what is the world's um, strongest parasite. Mm. An idea. Yeah. And then uh, I forget how he phrases it so eloquently that I'm like, wow, that's that's really that's really accurate right there. It, it almost like goes back to the idea of what language can do and what idea like and the ideas presented within the language that like a king could make a speech and two hundred years later people can still hear resonate to the ideas presented in that that like I said, a single form idea that's ever growing and ever possessive, whoever the mm-hmm. person it is, could be for good or evil. Uh, an idea can is powerful. Go on. I, I, I was just going to say that one of the one of the things that makes this movie work for me is how Nolan deals with dreams in the way that we think of dreams. Because a lot of the, I guess the the um, the mechanics of this universe are based on what we all have experienced when we're dreaming. It's just that he gives explanations for them, like the start of the dream. You never see the start of the dream; they're just there. Yes, which is like how you. You never remember starting a dream. You just remember being in it. Yes. Um, the dreams within a dream, we've... I mean, I at least have experienced it occasionally. I'm not sure if you have or if anyone else has, but it's pretty trippy. I actually experienced it last week. Um, yeah. I, it was, like, early in the morning. Um... 
I dreamed I, I dreamt I got a text message from someone, and then I dreamt myself waking up from that and realizing, no, they hadn't texted me, and then I woke up proper, and I was like, did I just inception myself? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I think I did. I never had a moment like waking up and then waking up again. I've had those moments of lucid dreams where I realize yes. this is not real. I need to wake up. Most recent time is that um, this is in October. And I, it's funny because I hadn't watched the movie in a little while. I, there is the, the horror movie, The Conjuring, and the main antagonist is this witch called Bathsheba. And I remember like, I forget, the star of the dream, the idea of the dream is that like I had to get the new archival Superman, the Superman 1978 Blu-ray that it came out, like a three-hour cut along with Superman 2, the Dick Donner cut of that movie. I'm like, I have to get this Blu-ray. And then all of a sudden, I'm in my house, and I'm being chased by this witch. And then and I recognize who she is, and I'm like, shit. And then I realize, like, wait, she's not real. I need to wake up. And I'm like, I gotta wake up, I gotta wake up, I gotta wake up. And I wake up, it's 3.15 in the morning, and it's around the witching hour, and then I find out 3.15 is when... The murders of uh, the Amityville Horror happened that time. They're like, well, that just that just makes me feel all kinds of good stuff all over my body. And then I went back to sleep like, oh, Jesus. But what would you say you probably your least favorite or maybe a scene you have the most problem with in Inception? I think the more I think about it, um, probably the, the scenes in Limbo just because – I don't want to say it, it's rushed, but I feel like it, it ends up just being glossed over. It's just like, oh, here's Maul, right where we expected to find her. And right there conveniently is is Fisher, whom we needed to save. And then right after that, they find Saito exactly where... Um, they thought he would be too. It's just despite years had gone by, yeah, like years, de- decades. decades. Yet Cobb had not aged. Yeah. Hmm, that's fair. Um, her my favorite scene. I mean, it's cliche. It could be the end sequence, like the montage set yeah. the time. I mean, because people have criticized Nolan being too cold of a filmmaker or too calculating, and then like raw emotion. It's something that he finally has like a hard time articulating in his movies, and you, and you could argue in Interstellar he tries to enlist that maybe, kind of like it may land kind of false, but for something that it just it gets me every time. I think it's just perfect cutting. It's, it's I I love to call it like certain sequences pure filmmaking that you define it and it just immediately is great visual storytelling. Whether it be, it could be the chasing of the arc um in raise the lost ark like the jumping from the horse to the truck and batting the nazis up and then knocking the cars off or in halloween where we see jamie lee curtis going from one um house to another and we just cut from her point of view to her reactions or in robocop when he goes into the warehouse and he blows away all the drug dealers with the bombastic triumphant music behind him and it's just if I get such a rise at that moment, it is, it's infectious for me. 
And for my least favorite moment, I mean, I kind of, it's not a moment. I just feel like kind of Maul's character is kind of underwritten, which is a kind of criticism yeah. of a lot of female characters in Nolan movies, sadly. And I just feel like because Marion Cotillard is a wonderful actress, and ironically, she won the Oscar for portraying Edith Piaf in a bio, a bio, a bio piece. Um, I'm pretty sure, I'm not sure if it was before or after this. I can't remember, but uh, and it's just ironic that and Edith Piaf song is the song, the needle, the one needle drop in this movie that's used <laughs> few a few times. But there's like one sequence that kind of bothers me. Uh, it's not like I said. It's not one moment. It's just like little moments here and there. It's not like one scene. Like point out like. There's the redhead stepchild of all the scenes, everything, and I would be able to know how to pick one a redhead stepchild step out of a crowd, you know, because you are one. I am not a stepchild. My parents love me very much, despite the stories I've told you today. <laughs> <laughs> um, where do you think this stands in Nolan's canon? Um, it's one of his best. Yes, I mean, yeah. It, there aren't that many bad ones. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing this podcast at all. Right. But um, I think, the again, the way he makes this really strange world seem very natural, seem very breathable, um, gives it its own life, its identity. Um, I think that goes a long way into um into where this ranks in this film. I would say the difference between like this movie and Interstellar is the fact that everything in Inception just seems a little bit more real than anything in Interstellar. And I get that in Interstellar he's not going for what might seem real or plausible um probable right um he's going for you know the very fringe limits of science fiction there this is definitely science fiction yes but it's a lot more realistic um do you think it's because it's within the confines of a crime film? Or a heist movie, I should say. I wouldn't say so. I, I I think the reason why it feels real is because there are rules about this world that um allow it to be real. One of the rules has a one of the rules cop has is don't build anything in your dreams that's too strange. Which is a common rule that fiction writers have to apply, especially when you're writing fantasy or um, science fiction. You can have strange things happen, but if you have um, a planet that looks like Earth, but the sun is green, it's going to seem, you know, inauthentic. Right. I mean, you think of... You think of, like, the opening of Game of Thrones. Yeah. Where we do have these ice people kill these three guards that have left the wall. Mm -hmm. However, 
every little piece of description about these people before that happens is grounded in a certain it has a certain texture to it or yeah it's certain like, mythos about it right i mean hell you can have like even in lord of the rings like opening up with like the idea of hobbits and the explaining of the shire and the, how the middle earth is run or in the expanse where it's it is colonies on mars versus like the belters and people on earth and the and on the moon and how that all those relations kind of work out but it's it's, I forget, I forget how Walt Disney would phrase it, but like a Walt Disney, you could tug on the tail of a cow and it will shake the bell at the front end of it. It's all depending on the context of how you set this story up. Because like all of a sudden, if you pull like just something random at the very end, it's like, well, they would just call bullshit on you. And it's a day's sex marketing, it wouldn't work. And I do think the fact that this is still made to the fact that this is set on earth and while well, interstellar is obviously a space travel movie mm-hmm. that maybe there is that kind of separation for most audiences than how this movie is. And maybe like, that's why people can kind of that these people gravitate to inception more than interstellar. Um, one of the biggest, and I do think this is like in the top five canon of Nolan's movies I still, I'm still pissed at the Academy Awards that this did not win Best Original Screenplay that year. The King's Speech did. Yeah, I, I don't get that. Well, I, I mean, love I King get, speech. I get that. It is an original screenplay, albeit based upon it's. It's only based on historical events. Yeah, it's not based on a book about historical events. Yeah, but. At one point, when they, that Jeffrey Rush and Colin Firth had that falling out, I real I, in the theater, I called them, like they're gonna get back together, and the, the, that's gonna be part of the resolution of the movie. This, I didn't know where the movie was gonna go. Yeah, and I think that's what the biggest term of original would fall under. However, it's a period piece, especially it's in England, so the Academy loves fucking loves period pieces. Uh, yes, uh, uh, j- jolly good. Yeah, and science fiction has never gotten the respect uh, uh, compared to uh, especially other kind of genres that the Academy usually rewards. So, I've always had this kind of chip on my shoulder at the Academy Awards since then. Despite, I will watch... I won't watch... I haven't watched it live in years, but I will just I watch... I'll watch the Twitter results of well, what's going on, and I'll, I will root I'm like, well, like, 2015, like, Mad Max Fury Road. I'm like, I want that to sweep the fucking Oscars, and it almost <laughs> did. I was still mad it didn't win Best Cinematography against The Revenant, but I'll get into that another day. Um, but final thoughts. Um, it's a good movie. It's a, it's a really good movie. You don't say. <sighs> um, yeah, it's, it's kind of like one of those movies where if I were introducing someone to the you know like a kid what movies can be this is one of the movies that I would show them because this this is about as you mentioned earlier filmmaking it's about world building and um it follows a, a lot of the um a lot of the uh the old tropes that no one likes to play to um you know a uh, character with a couple of characters with father issues mm-hmm. um 
the right. femme fatale. Yeah, it's a very film noir kind of setup right there. Um, you have a stellar cast. Um, I don't think there's a weak link in the cast. Everyone does an exceptional job playing their parts. Um, I, it's. Would you say this like the breakout role for Joseph Gordon-Levitt? I mean, it did catapult him to almost leading man status. Like yeah. this and Rises like that. After that, he got Looper and he got... And a bunch of... Even like he had his, his movie that he wrote and directed, Don John and everything. And, yeah. Um, and I'm trying to think of the other... Oh, yeah, The Man on the Wire, right? Uh, the Walk. The yes. Walk, yeah. And then he had that movie um, last year, the Olive Stone, where he played um, dude who worked for the CIA who went on a run. Oh, Snowden. Snowden, yes. Um, yeah, this, like this hand rises like proven that he became an A-list star and not just the kid from uh, Third Rock from the, the Sun. Sun. Yeah, or <laughs> I Angels always, in the Outfield. I always forget that's him and Third Rock from the Sun. Yes. And for some reason, like for the longest time, I switched out John Lithgow for Gary Shandlin. But I came to thinking about for the rough of the sun, I, and I kept bringing that up in conversation. It gets strange looks, but was never corrected. So, Third Rock from the Sun was probably the first John Lithgow experience I ever had. And whenever I hear his voice, I just well, it's all right. I just think of Dick, <laughs> not that Dick, but the the character he played. Yes. Uh, whenever I think of uh, John Lithgow, it's uh, is a Kind of like an indie comedy uh, from early 2000s called Orange County where Colin Hanks, Tom Hanks' son, wants to go to Stanford. And he plays – and John Lithgow plays his father. And he has this one moment where he goes to his father for help after he'd been denied from going to Stanford because somebody screwed – the um, guidance counsel screwed up the transcripts. And, he's, and it's like, I, I want to be a writer. Huh. A writer? What do you have to write about? You're not depressed. You're not gay. Not all writers are depressed or gay. All right, they're all poor, if you ask me. Oh, Stephen King. And he leads up like, and he leads. He lists up a few other people. Three people in the history of literature. At one point, John Lithgow was like, Sean, I have a burst of blood vessel in my brain. I could die any moment, but yet I still plug away every day. So you, I can leave something for you. <laughs> I'm gonna watch that now. Um, but I agree. This is what what filmmaking can do. What storytelling can do. What kind of it shows that people can just not just execute but elevate. It is how we've always become kind of cynical on Hollywood that it's just remakes or adaptations, and there's no original content uh, anymore. And Nolan's the kind of the one of the prime examples at a blockbuster level. Yeah. To tell interesting stories because there's plenty of indie filmmakers that tell stuff on micro budget levels. But however, Nolan has been, he's able to wipe that, walk that tightrope of being a four quadrant blockbuster filmmaker as well as being an auteur as well and being able to blend the two for a wide audience. And Inception is just another fine example of that type of that type of walking done to perfection. And um, yeah, so. If Justin, you want people to follow you on social media, where can they find you? Uh, they can follow me on Twitter at Justin Cirillo. That's spelled with a C-I. Um, I knew you were a criminal informant, you son of a bitch. C-I-A. Oh. 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 Justin Cirillo. Um, 
What am I tweeting about lately? Uh, the Giants suck. The Jets also suck. Um, the Yankees have made a huge mistake. <laughs> I made a huge mistake. Uh, um, <laughs> um, um, the president sucks. Yeah. <laughs> we suck. <laughs> I'm a dude. You're a dude. He's a dude. She's a dude because we're all dudes. Um. Yeah, so pretty much everything sucks. <laughs> everything sucks. Follow me to find out my opinion on why everything sucks. Everything sucks and we're going to die. <laughs> Reminds me of a song that Dennis Leary did on one of his comedy albums. <clears throat> Life's going to suck when you grow up, when you grow up, when you grow up. Life's going to suck when you grow up, but it sucks pretty bad right now. And it just goes on a list of why things suck. Like, you may have to go to war, shoot a gun, kill a nun. You're going to have to end up... Uh, oh, mess and whatever. But yeah, anywhere else? Not really. No. Okay. I don't think people want to see pictures of me, so <sighs> I'll put out the Instagram. That's fair. <laughs> uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can follow me at Timothy Rooney Two. My Instagram at Rooney Ten Twelve. Where I will uh, I will invade your feeds with plenty of uh, selfies because I am uh, vain like that. Uh, You're where as- I am when I first discovered Instagram. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe I, I will do the true artist and just become very abstract with my postings for the next couple days, for at least a couple of weeks anyway. Uh, you can also follow my YouTube page uh, called Through the Lens Productions where my latest short film DD is up, as well as my Facebook page under the same name. And if you like this uh, podcast and this, and this episode, uh, give us a five-star review and leave a written review and subscribe to us because it really helps uh, this podcast get out there so more people can enjoy the kind of content and entertainment we're putting out there for them. It'll take a minute of your time, and I'll be internally grateful for that. Now, Justin, thank you for taking time out of your Sunday evening to do this recording with me. No problem. Anytime. All right. And stay tuned, everybody, because there's a reboot of a certain Kryptonian coming up later this week in preparation for Justice League's release. So stay tuned for that. And we'll talk to you soon.